0: Good evening, it's good to be here with you. Should I put this back on there, the little, little puffer thing? Leave it off, put it on? Don't worry about it, okay. Only because when you say peas without the little thing, it's boom, and so I don't want to... We are in 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3. My intention was to complete this book tonight, and that is not going to happen. Um, and and fortunately, I am in good company because every commentary that I read, um, I even listened to several sermons and, and how they handled this, and not one had a nice, neat, succinct treatment of 2 Peter 3. So I am... Not even going to try. Um, we would be here a long, long time. So that being said, we'll just have to do the second part some other time. But I'm really looking forward to looking into God's Word about 2 Peter chapter 3. Up to this point, we've been looking at the book as a whole through the lens of knowledge of God. And how the knowledge of God, which is really an informed and an intimate relationship with our God, that has its beginnings at our conversion, but is growing, ultimately that is the the solution to us being able to withstand suffering, for us to be able to withstand false teaching, for us to be able to persevere, to know God. And that's not just a cliche, that's not just simply something that sounds really nice, but it is a reality for the Christian. In chapter 1, we looked at how knowing God impacts our values, our behavior, and our assurance. We also see that knowing God will come through his word, the Bible. In chapter 2, we saw how knowing God will require that we know what isn't of God. Namely, false teachers and false teaching. Tonight, what we're going to be seeing is that knowing God is also knowing what is to come on the day of God or the day of the Lord. So knowing God is knowing what is to come on the day of the Lord. I don't know if you're familiar with drama. Um, I'm not talking about like junior high drama. I'm talking about like drama like plays. Um, One of the most well-known plays in the 20th century was a play called Waiting for Godot. It was written by a, a playwright named Samuel Beckett. And Waiting for Godot, if you have not seen this play, basically what you missed or what you've missed by not seeing it is that this. Waiting for Godot, says one critic, has achieved a theoretical impossibility, a play in which nothing happens twice. Now, the play has two acts and involves two different characters. And sporadically, a couple other characters come, but the staging is very bare. There's a tree, and that's it. And there's two men who are talking. And towards the end of the first act, a character shows up and says that Godot will come, but he's not coming today. He'll come tomorrow. So you begin act two. After the interval, the play resumes the next day. There's really no plot development at all until the end of the second and final act when that same person who came the previous day saying that Godot was going to come tomorrow tells them he's not going to come, but he'll come tomorrow. And the play ends. Now, this drama started Actually it was, was, you think, well this sounds like a, a nonsensical play and, and that's kind of the point. The point is that life in its existence is somewhat humdrum, it's waiting and trying to defeat the monotony or there even the, the terror of the monotony of the fact that nothing is coming and nothing really happens. The drama world was startled by this new concept, a play with no plot, no climax, no character development, breaking all the rules of theater, and that was the point. Now, one popular interpretation of this play is that the character Godot, which is French for God, never appears. And he represents God, and the gullible characters are simply Christians who are waiting for God, adamantly believing in someone who may or may not exist, and who ultimately never shows up. The play's pathos lies in one aspect of Godot's promise. It's timing. It's never in the present, but always in the future. Believing in his coming is not based on experience, it's based on faith. He's coming. Except he never shows up. Now this truly is an apt way to mock you and me if you hold to that interpretation of the play. The playwright insists there are lots of different interpretations, but this certainly is one of the more popular ones. Because we are, in fact, a group of characters characterized by waiting in faith for God. And what I'm describing to you, this kind of mocking, this kind of lampooning of people who are waiting for something that hasn't happened yet, is exactly what we see in 2 Peter chapter 3. In fact, let's pick up in verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of all creation. It should not surprise us that there are objections to the idea of Christ's coming. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at the fact that the knowledge of God means that there is a day of the Lord. And that, first of all, there are going to be objections to this day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord equals judgment day. The day of the Lord equals judgment day. And there are objections to this concept of judgment. We're going to look at three different objectives this evening or at three different objections, I should say, to this concept of Christ's coming, this concept of judgment. We're going to look at three different objections, and we're also going to look at a Christian's response to these objections, okay? So first of all, the first objection to Christ's coming, or what we would say, the judgment of the Lord. The first objection is a behavioral objection, we see this in verse 3. It says know this first of all that in the last days mockers will come after I'm sorry mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts. That phrase following after their own lusts tells us about their behavior. The prospect of God's judgment impedes on the way that they want to live. And they would rather not entertain such a notion. Now, this is not uncommon when it comes to the concept of false teaching. False teaching is rarely about doctrine, and it has more to do with behavior and being able to use doctrine to justify behavior. Think of it this way. Do you remember when you were back in school and the teacher left the room? Remember that? What was your classroom like when the teacher left the room? Was it more orderly, or was it less orderly? Of course, it was less orderly. The teacher leaves, then things go from relatively peaceful to the realization that the teacher isn't there, and then you start to hear conversations, and then perhaps things start to fly through the air. (laughs) And what if the teacher doesn't come back for a long time? Well then, it's anarchy. It's, it's every man for himself. This is the book of Judges. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes, right? Well, imagine if the teacher never came back. That's, in essence, what's going on here with these false teachers. The teacher has left the classroom, and the teacher is not coming back. In fact, they would rather the teacher not come back. Why? Because when that teacher comes back, if the teacher comes back, they're going to pay for it. So it's better from their own behavioral standpoint to say, nope, where is his coming? Now, as a ruse, they mock the claims of those who will say he will come back to judge. If such a thing existed back then, those who declared Christ's return, people like you and me, they'd kind of get lumped in with those who stand on the street corner. You know, if you've ever been to like a a game or or you've been to an, an event where there's a lot of people gathering and there's someone holding up a sign saying the end is near. I mean, don't they look ridiculous? That's kind of the way you and I would have looked to these teachers. The end is near. I mean they're holding up the sign. Now, how then do we respond to this kind of an objection? Well, the fact of the matter is, there is no objectivity in their objection. You see, their objection to Christ's coming is more behavioral. So really, if it feels good, do it. That's their mantra. That's their way of life. Those who are unfit to live righteously on their own can hardly be depended on for reliably assessing what is true. Okay? So if there is a level of behavioral... um, What's the word I'm trying to look for? If, If basically they are doing what is right in their own eyes, they cannot be trusted to accurately assess what is true and what isn't true. Why? Because their behavior has blinded their eyes. And I'd say, a lot of times, when we prepare to defend our faith against those who might oppose, a lot of times we, we are eager to make sure that we understand doctrine, and that's good. We're eager to perhaps even understand a, a level of what that other person believes, or perhaps what objections people might have to our faith and to Christianity how do I know that Jesus is really alive and, and how do I know that Jesus is God and, and how do I know that that you know that, that there is that the Bible can be trusted I mean wasn't it just assembled by, by human authors and, and all of these objections we prepare for that but many times we don't prepare for the fact that the people that we're trying to share the gospel with just really enjoy living the way that they live and that's their biggest objection to what you have to present to them it's not in content as much as it is behavior. They enjoy living according to their lusts. And there is a realization that to hold to Christ's coming, to hold to a day of judgment, significantly impedes on how they should be living right now. That's a really big deal for a lot of people. So it's a whole lot easier to go la 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 or ha 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 instead of really intellectually dealing with the significance or the reality of Christ's returning. So there is a behavioral objection. And frankly, this is an intellectually weak approach. And so it has to be combined with something. Which brings us to our second objection, to the second objection to Christ's return. And we see that in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. This is what we would call a logical objection. First one was a behavioral objection. How they live. This is more of a logical objection. Where is the promise of his coming? Things have been going on just as they were, and he's not here. The world is still here, Christ does not come, and things keep happening like they always have. You know, so I looked up on the ever-reliable source Wikipedia, which is a great reference point if you want to find out something quickly. And I did a brief count of how many predictions have been made by people who claim to be Christian of when Christ was coming to earth since early church. Okay? And I counted roughly around 170 predictions of when Christ was going to return to earth by Christians. You know, some of the guys are kind of goofy. Harold Camping, made multiple predictions. As a matter of fact, I remember in seminary driving up to Michigan and there was a billboard there just outside Oregon, Ohio and it said, are you ready for Christ's return? May 21st, 2011. And it was a huge billboard. I vividly remember seeing it and I was thinking, why couldn't it be April 21st? Because my exams are the first week of May. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, you know? Well, here we are. Guys like Pat Robertson, who's predicted on three different occasions when Christ is going to return. Guys like Jim Jones. You know, then we have some cult groups who have this combination of, you know, this this Christ's return slash apocalyptic. You know, if you remember the the comet, the Hale-Bopp comet and the... uh, uh, the, the, the cult that, that ended up taking their own lives because this, you know, aliens were supposed to take them away. and, and Just a lot of craziness. And you know what? As goofy as that all sounds, some of our church heroes of the faith made some of these predictions too. Men like Irenaeus, Martin Luther, John Wesley made predictions as to when they believed Christ was going to come. And here we are still going to church on Sunday evenings. For some, religious history is like one big illustration of the boy who cried wolf. He's coming! He's coming! It's waiting for Godot. And so, from a logical standpoint, those who would mock the sense of Or the concept of Christ coming, just look around and say, where is it? How do we respond to this objection? How do Christians respond to this rejection? Well, fortunately, the gospel shows us the way. Let's look at verse 5. The first response, and there's actually two responses. The first response is, they have forgotten that God has intervened in the past. They've forgotten that God has intervened in the past. Verse five For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world, at that time, was also was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. And destruction of ungodly men. That phrase there at the beginning of verse 5, it escapes their notice. You know, whether they mean to or not, depending on your translation, some uh, translators uh, see a level of intent. They purposely ignore this truth. Um, Given the look at the grammar, there's some cause, I, I think more cause to believe that this may be unintentional. Regardless... Whether they mean to or not, they forget that God created the world with and from water, and He destroyed it with water from a flood. Now, as a result, they have no believe, no basis to believe that God would judge the earth. If you think about it, if God isn't active in creation, why would be active? Why would He be active in judgment? And so, the issue here is not so much that they don't believe in a judgment. The issue actually stems back to whether or not they believe in a creator. You too. You cannot hold to a belief. You cannot logically and consistently hold to a belief that God will right all wrongs. Like what Pastor Kent preached about this morning. You can't hold to a belief that God will right all wrongs unless you believe that He is a creator. It is inconsistent to hold him accountable for not judging evil, while at the same time not giving him credit for creation. I mean, why is it that when tragedies like September 11th, or Hurricane Katrina, or the Indonesian tsunami that took hundreds of thousands of lives, and people are left asking, where is God in all this? Yet at the same time, they look at the stars, they look at the Grand Canyon, they look at DNA, and they say, there is no God there. There's an inconsistency. They intentionally or unintentionally, whatever, but they have forgotten that God has intervened in the past. So that's our first response. Our second response, you know, to borrow a quote from one author, God clearly defines what is right and wrong. However, speed for God is relative. Okay? God clearly defines what is right and wrong. However, speed is relative. You say, what do you mean? Well, let's look at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all come all, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. I say right and wrong are clearly defined by God for man, but speed is relative. Now, he says, don't let this one fact escape you. Don't be like those who were critical of Christ's coming, what we just found, you know, what we just described. It escapes their notice. Don't let this escape your notice. That a thousand years is as one day to God, and one day is as a, as, as a thousand years. What does that mean? God is not bound by our sense of urgency when it comes to judging the world. God is not bound by our sense of urgency when it comes to him judging the world. You know, I think back to one of the ways that my parents disciplined me when I was a child, and that was by sending me to my room. And I remember being sent to my room, and I had these curtains in my room, and they had all of these NFL football helmets. And I remember being sent to my room because I was disciplined, however long it was, And I remember looking at those helmets for what seemed like an eternity. Like it was forever that I was up there. Until either I eventually fell asleep or my parents got distracted and I came down. But I was there forever. (laughs) Now, what I also happened to notice as a fully-informed, well-instructed child. What I also happened to notice during this time is that when my siblings, when my brothers would get sent to the room, it seemed like they were up there for all of five seconds, and they were back down. It's was like, wait a second. You sent them to their room, and they're back down. Well, they've been up there for the same amount of time that you were up there. No, oh, come on. And in my limited view of time, For me, when it came to justice, time was like an eternity when it wasn't to my benefit. But when it was for my brothers, it was like an instant. My sense of time was really warped in view of my childhood but also in view of my sense of fairness and justice. Time was never fast enough when it benefited me personally, but it was also too fast when it applied to someone who had wronged me, namely my brothers. This is what was kind of taking place in the minds of those who are waiting for God, waiting for Christ to come back and judge. Where is he? Everyone else is wondering when he's coming. And so are we. And it sure seems like it's slow. But God is not bound by that same sense of time. The slowness of God is not slow to him. He has his time frame, and he'll execute his plan according to it. And I will say here, this is where I would say God takes the reader... Peter is taking the readers, the believers, and he's now shifting their focus from what we think to how we should feel. Because when you look at verse 9, there's a sense of not just, hey, think this way, but feel this way. Verse 9, "'The Lord is not slow about his promise, "'as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, "'not wishing for any to perish,' but for all to come to repentance. We also see this down in verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. So there's this essence of patience of God that should influence how we look at his not coming yet. Now I say, the writer here, Peter, is pulling uh, the readers in to perhaps how they ought to feel. And so I think from, from, from this text, I, I'd say two feelings are appropriate. First of all, the slowness of God, the slowness of God, the patience of God, should bring about a feeling of appreciation, in that he has spared us from the judgment we deserved and instead given us salvation as we have repented. Appreciation. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know what, this isn't just an appreciation for me. This is an appreciation for God's patience with all of my ancestry. You know, I was thinking about The fact that I'm sure, I don't have a full knowledge of of my ancestry, of all the wonderful things that my ancestors did, and that that tends to be what we remember, you know, things that we record. I had an ancestor that signed the Declaration of Independence, or I have an ancestor that came over in the Mayflower. I'm sure I had ancestors that maybe have done some great things, but I'm sure I also had some ancestors that most certainly deserved the judgment of God on them. I may have had ancestors that committed some terrible crimes. They may have beaten their wives. They may have cheated on their spouses. They may have held slaves. They may have killed people. They may have raped people. They may have done a lot of horrible things. And yet, here I am, why am I here? If I had ancestors that were that awful, I'm wondering seriously, if there were people in my family tree that people looked at and wondered the same thing that the Christians were wondering in Second Peter chapter 3. God, why do you allow for that person to walk on this planet? To which I say, praise the Lord. They were able to reproduce and here I am. Praise the Lord. I don't know why other than I have the privilege of being saved. In his patience, he has allowed for the gospel to reach me. And, And if we're all honest, we can all spend time giving thanks to God for how he preserved our ancestry as well. So there's this level of appreciation. But we could also say that the slowness of God should also bring about a feeling of compassion As the patience of God is showing is just as much for the mocker as it is for me. You see, when we read verses like 9 and 15, we think, yes, praise the Lord. The patience of the Lord is there so that people might come to repentance. But in the context, who is God being patient with? The mockers, the people that should be judged. And what God is saying is, I am not judging because there are people like those mockers who I am going to save. The mocker is the primary beneficiary, as I read this passage of God's patience, as he is not yet judged. Perhaps God would change him and save him. You know, what mockers or wretches do we want to see God wipe out yesterday? That for whatever reason, they're still here. Christ hasn't come. What people have sinned against us with a seeming lack of any desire to repent, and with what looks like God's giving a blind eye to their sin. What people come to mind? You know, I, my wife and I—we have, we have some friends, and um, and, and full disclosure, I, I understand where they're coming from when they say what they're about to say. So there, there's a level of depravity I'm about to admit. Okay, so we have some friends that that you know, in conversations come up in the past and whatever, they refer to island people. Now this isn't racist or anything like that, but they refer to island people and that there are people that, that these individuals know that if them and that other individual, that island person, were the only two people left on the face of the planet and they were on an island together, that the species would just be eliminated <laughs> and God would have to start all over again. If I were stuck on an island with that person and we were the only people left on the planet, God would just have to start over because I detest them so much, okay? And so in conversation every once in a while, oh, that person's such an island person. It's like, okay, but I kind of get it because at some level, we have island people, people that honestly, if we were the last person on the face of the planet and we were stuck on an island with them, we would probably desire to find the remotest place and have them find the opposite place just because of how little we care for them or how despicable they may be. And yes, within the body of Christ, that ought not to be, but let's be honest. That's the patience that God is demonstrating. It's not for the lovely people. It's not for the almost righteous people. It's not for the people who are pretty good and are almost there, and they just, that, they just need that little nudge. No, because those people don't exist. It's for people like you and like me, what we were prior to salvation. Amen. It's that level of compassion. Compassion. So we have two objections that we see here in the text. But I think there's a third objection to Christ's coming. We've seen the behavioral objection. I just want to do what I want. We have a logical objection. Where is Jesus? But I think thirdly, and I'm going to look at really just kind of maybe a, 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 an approach to this text that might not be directly in the text, but certainly comes from an interpretation of the text. And that would be a moral objection to the coming of Christ. The moral objection to the day of judgment. What do I mean by that? Meaning this, that when we read verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat and the earth and its works will be burnt up. And then in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and elements will melt with an intense heat. A moral objection to that. Meaning, a good God would not be so tyrannical as to judge the earth with fire and destroy everyone, would he? But there's a moral objection. Now, as as a a point of illustration, so in um, some of the Jewish prayer books, uh, and and in fact... um, uh, the Talmud is, is, is one of an example. So, so you have this example of a, 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 a Hebrew writing where you have the, the words of the Old Testament, but then you have something added to that in those books called the Midrash, which was like a rabbinical commentary to the Old Testament. And, you know, often in Orthodox churches or, or whatever, they'll do readings, and they'll do readings from the text of the Old Testament, but they'll also have the Midrash, being read in these commentaries as well, and it's all part of the, the service. And so so if you were to read a Hebrew text or if you were to you know be able to you know read the actual Hebrew itself or whatever, that there would be the context of the Old Testament, but then there would also be these rabbinical commentaries. And it's interesting to see how some of the rabbis that have commented that, that have commented on some of these passages have this sense of God that what we're talking about, have this moral objection. One such instance is Exodus chapter 15. So in Exodus chapter 15, you have the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, having gone through the Red Sea, right? Towers of water, they're walking through the middle. Egypt is following after them, right? So the Hebrews make it to the other side, and what happens? The water comes down, Egypt is destroyed. Egyptians are destroyed and in Exodus chapter 15 you have this song by Moses called the song of the sea you don't have to turn there but in Exodus chapter 15 you got to listen to what Moses is saying about God Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord I will sing to the Lord for he is exalted the horse and its rider he is hurled into the sea the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, I will extol him. Then verse 3: The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he's cast in the sea. And the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep covers them. They went down to the depths like a stone. And they're singing, this rejoicing. And these rabbis are looking at Exodus 15, and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This isn't in agreement with God. And so, part of the midrash for Exodus chapter 15 was this commentary, the statement where God is seeing them rejoice and is actually quite vexed. And he sees the angels about to, adju- about to respond in joy, and he says, How dare you sing for joy when my creatures are dying? Now, this is part of the Jewish Talmud, this is part of, of their worship. They're actually adding statements to God in order to somehow salve this, you know, sense of this, this, this level of, of, you know, God is really sounding like, you know, he, he's a terrible God. God wouldn't act like this. God wouldn't judge you like this. I mean, come on, really? Christ coming to earth, destroying by fire? Really? How do we respond to this objection as Christians? I'd say the response really comes from the knowledge of God that permeates the entire book of 2 Peter. Usually, the preaching of Christ's coming is in the face of evil when it flourishes. I mean, think about it. When you have those who are preaching, Christ is going to come and Christ is going to judge. More often than not, that message becomes popular when sin flourishes in a society. Because you have the saints that have been preserved by God seeing this wickedness abound, knowing that this isn't the way it ought to be, and looking at their scriptures and seeing, yes, God will judge, and then telling people about it. The issue here is justice. Will God allow for things to go unpunished? The present circumstances, according to 2 Peter 3, seem to contradict God's judgment. And man's limited perspective seemed to contradict God's judgment. And man's sensibilities seem to contradict God's judgment. But in the face of evil, the promise of God's judgment on evil is meant to be a comfort and a reassurance. Just like Pastor Kent preached this morning, right? We aren't to meddle in retribution. God will take care of that and he does it very precisely and he does it very comprehensively, right? So we can rest assured in that. Peter was reminding them, about what they already knew about God. Look back at the verse, look back at at, the first two verses of 2 Peter 3. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the command of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. He's not telling them anything he had not told them already. This is something they already know. And so he's reminding them. Now, Is there any judge who will be respected, much less keep his job, if he repeatedly lets criminals off lightly or doesn't punish them at all? I mean, do any of us get any type of warm feelings of gladness, of of joy, when we see that seven-time DUI offender get his eighth? We get angry when we see repeat sex offenders get let off only for them to commit the same crime again, don't we? But from a limited human standpoint, we understand the role of justice. And the problem here, this dispute or this objection, this moral objection to God being judged, really, you know what it comes down to? It's the fact that they just don't like it. It's just disagreeable. They don't like to think of God in that way. And so it can't be true. They don't like to think of God. They don't like to think of, of, they like to think of God as the Father. They like to think of God as the Comforter. They like to think of God as the Shepherd. They like to think of God as, you know, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Love to think about Jesus in the manger. Love to think about Jesus spreading love. But when it comes to God being judged, eh, not so much. Why? Because it's disagreeable. Because it perhaps violates the senses of what we might think he ought to be. Peter is saying, no. He will come. He's going to come. And he's going to judge. Regardless of the moral objection. And if I can show just in verse 13, to the Christian, however, this promise is also a promise of God's blessing. Verse 13, But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is God meting out justice. So what? So you have the day of the Lord. You have the promise of Christ coming. He is going to come. And there are those who mock. And we see these objections, and we have a response to this rejection. So what? You know, I have this, uh, uh, this, this quote from a fellow by the name of Penn Gillette, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Are you familiar with the magicians Penn and Teller? Penn and Teller? Okay. So they're in Las Vegas. And Penn, he's the big guy. If you know Penn and Teller, there's the big guy and the small guy. The big guy that talks and the small guy that doesn't say anything. Penn is the big guy. And he had a volunteer come. You know, he had someone volunteer for his magic show and, and whatnot. And so after the show, he got to meet Penn. And actually, he brought this volunteer, brought a New Testament and wrote a little note into it. And when he met Penn, he gave it to him, and he offered, he said, you know, thank you for having me here, for letting me back here. I want to give this to you. This has changed my life. It tells the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was just a a gospel offering. You know what Penn said? He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and oh, by the way, Penn's an atheist. He's not a Christian. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life, and you think that that, it's not really worth telling them because it might make them socially awkward. An atheist who thinks people should proselytize at all, or who just say, leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that a truck was coming at you, and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. If we believe, 2 Peter 3, that Christ is coming, and that he is coming as judge... got to share the gospel. We've got to share the gospel. Now, do we perform an exegesis of of 2 Peter 3 with everybody? Hey, you know, this is what's going to happen. This is going to happen. I mean, what does that look like? Well, I think this serves as the backdrop for sharing the good news, recognizing the consequences of what happens if they don't receive it. So, for example, a week from today, Mother's Day, when we have opportunity to be with family, when we have opportunity to be with family members who may or may not know Christ the Savior, do we lay 2 Peter 3 on them? No. But does 2 Peter serve as a backdrop for how we're going to pray for them this week and how, perhaps by God's grace, God will open a door for us to be able to talk about spiritual things to where maybe we have that relationship built already. Maybe we've built up the relational equity already, and now here's the time to actually say something. Or, and I don't mean to browbeat, are we too afraid of making this situation Maybe we're afraid of that because we haven't thought enough in advance or we haven't prayed, we haven't asked God for wisdom. To which I'd say, why not take this week as we look forward to an opportunity where most of us will interact with family members on Mother's Day and we understand the reality of something like this. That we pray, God, please give me an opportunity to share the good news of salvation because I don't want whoever's in the blank to experience this because it's going to happen i mean on a bright sunny sunday evening where you could be out and enjoying life and many people are and that's great and we praise the lord for that and this is a this is a heavy message but it's the truth and I'm, I'm, you know, speaking to an auditorium of those who at some level have been cured of a cancer and have the have the antidote and, and now have the opportunity to go out and share it, right? I mean, Penn's absolutely right. Why wouldn't we tell people about it? And are we praying for that opportunity? We don't beat people over the head, but man, how much worse is going to happen if they don't hear it? From and they don't accept Christ. Yes, we believe in God's sovereignty. Yes, we check our theology in with all of this. But maybe it's time to speak up. Maybe it's time to share the gospel. And if people, if you're anything like me, blanks, you know, are are in my in my head as I fill in the blank of of who this applies to and specific names. And and if this is true of them. They gotta hear i got to obey. So do you. Let's pray. God, thanks for this day. It's a sober message from your word. It's one that is true. Lord, it's one that as believers we take comfort, that you have spared us, that you've been patient with us, that you have, 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 have poured your wrath out on your son for us. God, I ask that for those who know Christ here this evening, and have faces and have souls come to mind. May we not be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Lord, there will be mockers who come with their mocking. At some sen- in some sense, that's part of the deal, what we signed up for. It's a cross that we have to bear. Yet, Lord, people are dying and they are going to hell. And You have given us the ministry of reconciliation you've called us to be ambassadors so lord may we pray this week for souls may we pray for one another and lord god if there's any here this evening that don't know christ don't mean to presume but there may be souls here that are hearing this and and they themselves would examine themselves and and wonder, am am I saved? Then God, would they talk to the person that brought them? Or would they come see myself or Pastor Kent or, or just other saints here who are equally as equipped to share the gospel so that they could be right with God even today? We would rejoice in your mercy and your grace for that. We love you. We thank you so much for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.